You cannot carry out fundamental change without a certain amount of madness. In this case, it comes from nonconformity. The courage to turn your back on the old formulas. The courage to invent the future. La révolution est victoire. L'échec appartient à la réaction et à la contre révolution. Hello and welcome to Invent the Future, a podcast where we discuss history, art, literature, theory, and more from a Marxist perspective. Today we are back for episode three after our hiatus last month. With the Black Lives Matter protests, the pandemic, and other stuff going on, we were not able to get everyone together. We hope you enjoyed the series of speeches that Ethan put together for our June update. We thought since we weren't able to record that it would be a good idea to promote the important messages of inspiring revolutionaries. We're happy to be back with you all today, and we've got most of the group with us. Unfortunately, because of the pandemic, we're still recording remotely, so thank you for bearing with any technical issues we may have. This also means we haven't hung out in months, which really sucks. But um, anyway, let's go around and say who's here and what we'll be talking about today. Hey, this is Ilex. And that's it. (laughs) Uh, This is Ethan. This is William. And this is Alex. This is Savannah. And so Ethan and William will be leading our discussion today. What are we going to be talking about? Um, we were going to give a little bit of a overview and history of the Intercosmos program, which was a program in the Soviet Union from the 60s through the 80s that uh, sent up cosmonauts from other countries along with Soviets up into space. I'm super excited for this episode. I know a little bit about mm-hmm. the various cosmonauts and just their histories and what they used to do before they became astronauts, and it's it's just really wild to me. So I'm really excited to dive into it. Which one of you wants to start out? So in the mid-60s, the USSR and its allies in the socialist world, they developed a plan for collaboration on some space research and technology using the Soviet Union's existing space infrastructure that was being built, that had been built and was being built because the Soviet Union won the space race. That sentence is a surprise to you if you're not aware of that. Um, Just even Wikipedia will tell you just the list of all the firsts that the Soviet Union got. The U.S. put a person on the moon first, and that's that apparently is it. So that was it for the space race. But no, but really, it's uh, <laughs> it's yeah, the Soviet Union won. Um, but so anyway, so they had the space infrastructure, and so in um, 1965, the Soviet Union, the German Democratic Republic, the People's Republic of Bulgaria, the Republic of Cuba, 
the Hungarian People's Republic, the Mongolian People's Republic, the Polish People's Republic, the Romanian Socialist Republic, and the Czechoslovak Socialist Republic. They had this conference where they discussed a program of joint research for space stuff like physics, meteorology, telecommunications, biology, all of that. So they would share research and they would have scientists work together and like work on satellites and equipment together. So um, in 1966, the Council for International Cooperation in the Peaceful Exploration of Outer Space was uh, set up as part of the USSR's Academy of Sciences. Um, the president of this council was this academician. He was a academician, Boris Petrov. And then in uh, September 1968, the, these countries, they submitted an organizational plan for the Inner Sputnik System of International Telecommunications to the UN, which is still in effect today. It's, it's just kind of a, it's how a lot of European telecommunication satellites things happen. It's a private entity now, unfortunately, but it's still around. Uh, but in Decem on December 20th, 1968, there was the first Intercosmos launch, and it was the Cosmos 261 satellite, and it had been worked on by scientists from Bulgaria, Hungary, the GDR, Poland, Romania, Czechoslovakia, and the Soviet Union. And they launched that one to study the upper atmosphere as well as the Aurora Borealis. And then the next year, they were launching more satellites, and by 1994, the project and its infrastructure um, had launched over 40 satellites for telecom satellites um probably some spy satellites um uh, but like photography like mapping gps all kinds of stuff i think some telescope satellites for space stuff so in in uh 69 the general secretary of the communist party of the soviet union leonid brezhnev he said our country has an extensive space program designed for many years ahead we are following our own road following consistently and purposefully our road of space conquest is a road of solving fundamental tasks, basic problems of science and technology. The Soviet Union regards space explorations as the great task of learning and practically using the forces and laws of nature in the interests of men, of labor, and in the interests of peace on the Earth. Um, yeah, and so in July 1976, the, so these nine countries, they met and they signed an intergovernmental agreement of collaboration. That, that's all in quotes that would authorize the countries these other countries to send someone up on a soviet ship uh the only requirement the soviets gave in who was picked was that it was a military pilot because they figured a military pilot would have um prior flight training but um the cosmonaut training would take about 18 months so at this point the um the soviet space stations the the so the first space station was a soviet one it was called salyut and by now, they were up on a Salyut 6, I believe. And so the ships that the Soviet cosmonauts used were called Soyuz, like Soyuz, whatever the number was. Um, and the cosmonauts on Salyut, they would take a Soyuz capsule up and they would park it at the station while they were aboard. Um, but the thing is, the Soyuz capsules were only supposed to be in space for 100 days before um, the batteries and propellants got a little stale. So they wanted to regularly send up cosmonauts with new Soyuz capsules to swap them out. They would also bring up supplies, mail, research, and all of that. And so they figured, it would just, hey, this is a pretty good opportunity to, to send up some cosmonauts because we have a pretty good idea of what we're doing. Um, they can go up and stay. Like these, these guest cosmonauts can come up, stay on Salyut, do some research for a bit, and um, we, we, know, we know what to expect, so it won't be anything extraordinarily dangerous i mean space flight is ludicrously dangerous but um it wouldn't be extra dangerous yeah and so then they picked the first cosmonaut the guest cosmonaut yeah thank you ethan yeah that first it's the first guest cosmonaut he was a czechoslovakian man 
and his name was Vladimir Remick. He flew on the Soyuz 28. So prior to this, as Ethan said before, the Intercosmos program had been launching various satellites into space <clears throat> just to do various scientific studies. Um, and Czechoslovakia had launched one, or at least helped with one that was launched before. So the, this wasn't their very first thing they had done in space, but this is the first time they had sent a human being to space for their country. He was actually, he was the first person who was not either a Soviet or a, an American to go into space. So that's pretty cool. Sort of broke that, not monopoly, but, you know, broke that streak that the two countries, these two major superpowers had. So Remick was born in 20, September 26th in 1948. And, oh my goodness, I'm not going to be able to pronounce these. <laughs> <sighs> Is it's it, okay. Is it Chesky Budejovici or something? I, Czech I, is really hard, so I don't ask me. Yeah, I have no clue. Maybe we'll edit that in later. I'll look it up. And edit it <laughs> a later. robot voice? Oh, yeah, yeah, a robot yeah. voice. So, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so he was born in September 26, 1948 to Blanca and Josef Remek. Uh, Josef was actually a fighter pilot. Um, he was a general in the Czechoslovak army, and he was a deputy defense minister of Czechoslovakia. So he had a long career in the military in Czechoslovakia. When Remick was six years old, he was taking on his first airplane flight, and he fell in love. He loved reading stories about aviation. He loved building models. But as a kid, he actually didn't want to be a pilot. Not at first, at least. He wanted to work in a pet shop. Um, Same. <laughs> yeah. Who doesn't? Aww, yeah, that's so cute. Super wholesome. Um, he moved frequently because of his father's military career, but from grade seven onward, Remick attended school in, here we go again, Brunel, B-R-N-O, Moravia. <laughs> we'll see. I doubt that's the right pronunciation. Apologies um, to any Bulgarian, apologies to any Czech. The book described as the Eastern Bloc Boy Scouts, which sounds pretty cool to me. Um, wish I could <laughs> Apologies to any um, Czech or Slovakian listeners. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> apologies for comparing... The pioneers of the Boy Scouts, too. I'm sure the pioneers were... They were, I'm sure, a million times cooler. <laughs> yeah. Um, he also participated in the Czechoslovak Youth Organization. After high school, he pursued an education in nuclear physics, so that's a bit of a change from a pet store worker. <laughs> Pretty close, though, I think. And he enlisted in the Czechoslovakian People's Army so he could learn how to fly. Um, in 1969, he moved to Prav Air Base, where he learned to fly MiG-21 supersonic fighter jets, which is cool. And by the age of only 24 years old, he was the best pilot in his squadron. Um, and he was awarded a scholarship to go to the Gagarin Air Force Academy in the Russian SFSR, where he studied from 1972 to 1976. Upon returning home in 1976, um, he was a captain in the Air Force. And when he came home, he served as a deputy squadron commander of the first fighter squadron until he was selected as a candidate to become the first Czechoslovakian cosmonaut. So, yeah, big, long military career, just like his dad. And with almost all of these cosmonauts, you know, they were all pilots beforehand, like Ethan said, because they had prior experience flying aircraft. So... Upon returning, I think this was in 1976, but the USSR started surveying Czechoslovakian pilots, and they looked at all 179 files for Air Force pilots between the ages of 25 and 35 at first. They were narrowed down to 100 initially, and I think the reason they did this is because pilots had to have regular medical checkups. I think it was annually or something like that. 
but eventually it was narrowed down to eight, one of which was Remek. During this entire process, none of the candidates were told that they were being considered to be a cosmonaut. And so they just believed that maybe they were being selected to test fly a new um, high-performance military aircraft or something like that. It wasn't until it was narrowed down to four candidates um, who were sent to Star City, which is in the Moscow Oblast, it's just outside of Moscow, for their final medical examinations that they were told that they were actually being considered to be cosmonauts, which is top secret information. Surprise. Surprise. Yeah, shocker. Um, even wow, though, that would have been intense. Yeah, I know. How, how wild to to go through all this testing and, you right. know, the expectation is like, oh, they must be must be some new military aircraft. They're like, nah. <laughs> JK. You're going to space, friend. So, you're going to space. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the only person Remek told uh, was his wife, which is cute, uh, I think, because um, he trusted Aww. her. Uh, and after the four returned home, the final two contenders were narrowed down to Remek and Uldrich Pelchak, I think is how you pronounce it. Were you going to say something, Ethan? Oh, I was going to say he only told his wife because he'd get sent to a gulag if he told anyone else, right? Yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Him and his entire lineage would be killed twice. Yeah, absolutely. Or something like that. (laughs) So yeah, once uh, these two final contenders were selected, they had to undergo um, six months of training initially. I think they eventually eventually had to go undergo 18 months total. I don't remember. You know, this chapter, now that I think about it, this chapter, I don't think wasn't as clear. I think it was the next chapter that went into detail about it, but I could be just misremembering with my notes. Yeah, I think, I think it was, I think it's like six months. I, I think they broke it up into a few things. So after six months, they were just doing general stuff. And then after six months, they got assigned whichever Soviet cosmonaut would um, be going with them into space. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it was after this first six month period that they were paired up. Um, Remick was paired up with Colonel Alexei Gubarev. He actually commanded the Soyuz 17. And during this time, Gubarev had Remick move into their place because Remick was was living kind of like a bachelor at the time in Moscow. He was just on his own. His family was back home in Czechoslovakia. So they moved in together to prepare for this for this trip. On February 25th, 1978, out of, after a lot of training, Gurev and Remick were actually announced as the main crew, and this was supposed to be only a few days before. Something with, with all these programs is that they select two people, and then they pair those people up with commanders who are, who are veterans of spaceflight, and everyone has to go through the training, and you don't know who is going to be selected by the end of it. And they usually announce it just a few days before the mission actually happens. And that's so that both pairs will train to their fullest capacity so that they're ready in the event of the primary crew getting sick or something happening. Something I wanted to throw in about um, when you said that Remick moved into uh, Gubarev's place. There's a quote from Gubarev where he said, uh, I told I told him to abandon his bachelor room in the hotel and move into my place. It was a decision made by all of us, my wife, daughter, and son included. I just I thought that was fun. Yeah, that's cool. That's wholesome. That's super cute. Yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's cool that they were willing to like live together so they could really get to know each other um, before the mission. Which on something this dangerous and important, I think it's crucial to work well <laughs> with your commander. So Pelsek and Rukovishnikov were to be the backup crew after the selection. Pelsek always believed 
that Remick was selected because of his father's military status. He didn't really let that go. I don't know if that's the case or not, or if Remick had just performed better during training, but the world may never know. <laughs> so on March 2nd, 1978, Remick and Goober prepared to launch, and it was, it was a very cold day. There was snow on the steps where they were going to launch the rocket. And Remick actually likened it to likened riding the elevator up to the cockpit to being escorted to hell. And uh, That sounds intimidating. Yeah, he, it does sound pretty intimidating from the way he describes it. Vladimir Remick recalls making the final journey to the Soyuz capsule with a sense of unease and even dread. It was freezing and there was snow on the barren steppe landscape. On the various platforms alongside the rocket were a lot of tech staff finishing up the required tasks. There were long, heavy, furry sheepskin coats with furry hats and heavy-duty gloves. And because they were working on the high platform where you really couldn't put fences, they had thick belts around them secured with heavy chains at the platform. And of course, in this cold weather, the steam came up from their mouths. As we slowly climbed up to the top in the slow elevator, each of them on multiple platforms knocked on the elevator window and showed thumbs up. I described it as if the devils escorted you to the cockpit because they were hairy, furry, with red cheeks steam coming from their mouths and those heavy, heavy chains. One hopes they're not escorting you to hell. I mean, I can imagine going into space was just terrifying, mm -hmm. even if it was exciting for them. So that sense of dread's probably understandable. <laughs> yeah. It seems pretty, pretty stressful. Pretty stressed out right now. Yeah, guys. <laughs> On March 2nd, 1978, under the radio call sign of Zenit or Zenith, crew would take off for a scheduled flight of seven days and 21 and a half hours, with plus or minus a half hour either way. And this was, at the time at least, determined to be like the standard time that they would spend in space so that no country could say that the USSR was favoring one or the other, um, which is interesting. So the, on March 3rd, the crew would link up with Salyut 6, and the Salyut crew consisting of Romanenko and Grechko would greet the cosmonauts with a traditional celebration of bread with salt and small containers of juice that they could clink together for good luck. I think that's kind of cool. Um, this is a standard celebration for all the cosmonauts when they got on board. Cute. Yeah. <laughs> they would spend five days doing research um, with these cosmonauts because they figured while they're up there helping them restock, we might as well get some work done. And so the experiments they did up there, including studying the oxygen use of body tissues while they're in a weightless environment and seeing if that differs and how it differs from on Earth, observing some of the glaciers on Earth, studying the growth of algae in a weightless environment, and measuring variations in the brightness of stars as they set behind the horizon of the Earth. They also socialized with each other, obviously, and they wrote letters to be sent back to Earth. After this period of time in the Salyut 6 station, uh, on March 10th, the cosmonauts undocked with their capsules containing materials from the experiments. Uh, so once home, Remick was awarded the title Hero of the Soviet Union and with the Order of Lenin, the honorary decree of pilot cosmonaut of the Czechoslovak Socialist Republic, and the title of Hero of Czechoslovakia with the Order of Clement. Gottwal, which I don't know who that is. I didn't look it up. He also received the gold medal of the Czechoslovakian Academy of Sciences and the medal for service to the motherland. I think he got some other awards, too, they didn't mention. Thousands of people came out to greet Remick and Pelchak when they returned. Um, Can I just say... Yeah. Freaking Order of Lenin. That's cool. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. Like, can you imagine living in a, a time and space where those great, like... Uh, those people were honored by being honored from the uh, legacy of someone who was truly not a shithead. Yeah. 
it's it's really incredible and i think they all were given the order of lenin i could be wrong about that i think you're i think they were passing them out pretty uh yeah i think if you did something that incredible like oprah yeah you get an order of lenin <laughs> you get an order, order of lenin. exactly it's, it's i our wish order god of i would love one <laughs> i'm guessing Aww. you can probably find one on ebay unfortunately I th- I've looked and I think they're pretty expensive. It wouldn't feel the but same. But they're still available. Yeah, no, it definitely wouldn't feel the same. Yeah. Just like, give it to yourself. <laughs> I deserve well, no, this. If, if Someone went to one, space for this. <laughs> if one of you buys one, the rest of us will pin it on you. <laughs> Aww. Aww. Simultaneously? Cute. That would be really cute. Oh, that's so cute. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm uh, going to use my school loans to just buy a bunch for everyone <laughs> in our cadre. Oh, my God. You said thousands of people greeted them in Prague when they came back? They did, yeah. That wasn't where they grew up, right? Those weren't... No. Because they came from villages? Yeah. Like smaller towns? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much all these people came from, from smaller towns or villages. That's the other thing. That's pretty amazing. Um, like, this guy, yeah, his background was... Like, he had an elite member of the military for a father, but most of the other guys came from real small towns and really humble backgrounds. Um Especially when we like go on to talk about Cuba and Vietnam, and I think we're ta- are we talking about Mongolia on this one? Um, yep. Yeah, like it really, really humble backgrounds, which is cool. One thing I wanted to share, um, one story I liked about it was uh, there were a picture. So there are a lot of pictures being taken of him, obviously, because he's just come back, and um, his hands were kind of red. Uh, and so, oh yeah, Western analyst. Were you gonna mention? Were you gonna say this? Oh no, go ahead. Oh, okay. But yeah, I, I read this. I just didn't throw it in my oh, notes. Okay. I just thought this was funny. So Western analysts, they were looking at these pictures. They're like, oh, look, he was probably having circulatory problems. Um, and it turns out this was traditional kind of Western bullshit because what actually happened is um, the doctors they examined him after his flight, and they were like, hey, what's up with your hands? And he said, oh, uh, that's easy. On salute, whenever I reached for a switch or a dial or something, the Russian shouted, don't touch that, and slapped my hands. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Blessed. Yeah, like, the, the the West, they'll just do anything they can to spin things in the worst possible light when it comes to socialist countries. Especially the, ones that are beating them in space travel. Yeah. Right. Dorks. <laughs> Remick, when he when he got back, he'd be, go on to become the deputy director of the Military Research Institute in Prague. Um, he would join the Defense Office of Czechoslovakia, but he wasn't really permitted to fly since he was a national icon. And this happened to a lot of these guys because of what happened to Yuri Gagarin, unfortunately. Um, so everyone was kind of s- afraid to let their first person in space fly again, or you know, even fly as a pilot because they were worried about them crashing, which is understandable. But he said flying, his feelings, you know, he had very strong feelings about this. Um, He said flying is, of course, a pilot's passion. We yearn for it, probably more so than the smoke addict for his cigarette. I am delighted to be able to put on quite regularly my pilot's overalls and helmet and climb into the cabin of a jet aircraft. So basically he, he found ways around it and there were other people who liked him and who worked with him who would let him fly um, but he said I would of course be happy to sit once again in the seat of a piloted spacecraft but I am quite satisfied to see someone else enjoying this unique experience Aww. yeah yeah. so he eventually was able to, to kind of fly again here and there but you know he wasn't able to do anything crazy they were pretty careful 
with him. I mean, that's so. I mean, that was kind of the same thing that happened. Um, well, with Yuri Gagarin, when he got back, he was like, "God, I just, I really want to get back into space. Really want to, or like even back behind the controls of a plane." And they were like, "No, you're too important. No, like we can't have you dying." Eventually, he did get clearance to fly again, and his plane crashed and he died. So, like, I imagine that was just like, "See, look, look what happened. We gave him permission to fly again, and he fucking died." Right. Yeah. Yeah, they also, so one of the things is um, because of that, his his relationship with the military was kind of s- strained. And um, by 1990, he was a colonel, um, but he served as the director of the Military Air and Space Museum in Prague. By 1995, he was kind of cutting ties with the military because um, he was frustrated. They uh, wanted to disband his department that he was working for, and as an alternative, he was offered the position of a curator uh, for the museum's collection of space artifacts. Um, and he just kind of felt like he was being pigeonholed and he was putting, being curated along with these artifacts artifacts as, you know, another one. He, he didn't want to just be a piece of memorabilia. And so he, he kind of tried to avoid that position and kind of cut ties with the military after that. Do you have anything else to add on him? Um, I don't think so. He was... Uh... He was the Czech ambassador to Russia from 2014 to 2018. Mm-hmm. And oh, wow. he said he had always remained firmly loyal to his communist roots and views, and he steadfastly promotes the ideology and party that educated him and gave him the opportunity to be selected to fly into space, unquote. Hell yeah. It's blessed. What a guy. Yeah, because, I mean, some of the people, um, I would later... We'll get to these. Some of these people, their post-space career, they end up saying some bullshit about the Soviet Union or communism. But some of them, some of them stayed true to their uh, stayed true to their their political beliefs. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and some of them like got involved in business and ended up as like CEOs or gross stuff like that. So, um, not great. <laughs> but yeah, he 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 remained committed to his views which is cool yeah so then the next one was uh the next country was poland and um the guy who ended up getting selected to be the cosmonaut um was his name uh, he's still alive his name is Miroslav Hermaszewski I believe Polish is another very difficult language so I apologize he was born in Poland but like he's got this wild story from when he was a baby um because he was Okay, so in so little 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 bit of history here. Um, so in 1943, Poland had been occupied by the Nazis, but there was this group in the um, regions of Volhynia, or Volhynia, I'm not sure, and Eastern Galicia, which had been divided by the Nazis in the USSR. That kind of split up. Basically, like there were Ukrainian nationalists. It was okay. So at the time, it was part of like this this um the nazi ukrainian civilian regime and was in ukraine but was historically poland anyway so they had these ukrainian nationalists um the ukrainian insurgent army in january 1940 or sorry in march 1943 there was a massacre in volnaya basically where so basically the upa was fighting against the nazis also the soviets 
also the Polish, also the Jews, basically everybody they didn't consider like pure Ukrainian, which I'm glad Ukraine has dealt with that. Right. By now. Jeez. Yeah. Mm. Good job. But anyway, um Yeah. So for this so this is the village where um, Miroslav and his family were. They were he was about like 18 months old, I think. And so they came into town, they burned houses uh, down, they were murdering dozens of families. Hermoshuski's mother was running with him, like escaped with him, took him into the woods. Um, there was like a UPA guy chasing them. And so he shot at them and hit her in the ear. And so she fell. And when he came over to check on her, she pretended to play dead. And Hermoshuski, as a baby, somehow didn't cry. And so he assumed that they were dead and they left. So when his mother regained consciousness, she was dazed and, like, barely conscious, so she crawled, like, six kilometers to another village, but she forgot the, her baby because she was had just been shot in the head. I was a little confused. And so the next morning, his father and his brother searched for him in the woods, and they found him barely alive. So, yeah, so that's an amazing, uh, amazing story. Yeah, it was a baby, but almost got killed by the Nazis, so. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they were just trying to they were basically trying to purge any non-Ukrainian elements so they could expand that way. Um, yeah, it was a it was a whole mess. You could do a whole I mean, you could talk at length about uh those these kind of like right nationalist groups during World War 2. It was a whole it was a whole thing. But um So he ended up becoming an aerospace engineer and then a fighter pilot and yeah, then he got and he got selected. And so June 27, 1978, he was on Soyuz 30, which launched. Poland, everybody in Poland thought it was great that they there was finally a Polish person in space. Uh, they were comparing Hermoszewski to, there's apparently a Polish folk hero who flew to the moon on a rooster. And so there were a lot of, like, comparisons to to this folk hero, which is kind of fun. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. And so, and they were in space. Everything was fine. As far as I can tell, they were doing tests on um, semiconductor materials, like biology and zero G. And they used, they had this multi-spectrum camera that they would use to photograph Poland and other parts of the planet. And they could use these base. Yeah. Basically satellite. This is early satellite photography, basically. Um, and they were able to do stuff like, you know, geological analysis weather analysis that kind of stuff and they did this for poland because there was a polish guy so yeah um and then when he got back he as far as i can tell he stayed in the air forces the polish air forces until he retired uh so when martial law they so poland along with everything else in eastern europe was kind of a mess sometimes uh in 1981 the martial law was imposed in Poland, and Herbojewski was named as a member of the Military Council of National Sal- uh, Salvation, which sounds scary, but he didn't know, and he didn't, like, sign up for that. They were just, like, they appointed him, and they, like, ordered him to return to Warsaw because he was in Moscow studying, and so so that was that was a whole weird thing, but, yeah, he just, he stayed in, um, he was, yeah, he was in the Polish Air Force for 40 years, so. Didn't he find out some weird way, I I might be misremembering this. I thought it said that he was like watching TV in it or something oh, like that. Oh, maybe. Um, something weird. Yeah. And he just, I... he just kind of found out in a weird way, which that's a hell of a way to figure <laughs> out you're on this council. Yeah. I don't, that you didn't ask to be on. I don't remember. Yeah. But I mean, that's about, that's about it for Hermajewski. He was, uh, I, he ran for, uh, basically he ran, f- he ran for to be a candidate and, uh, the European Parliament. I don't think he got elected. Yeah, as far as I can tell, he's just kind of chilling in his in his retirement. 
One thing that is pretty cool about him, though, um, these days is that he's very critical of for-profit space flight because he's all he's all about you know space exploration is something that you is done for science and for the advancement of human uh, human knowledge and human society. He he had this quote in an interview. He said. Um, a race to prestige on an us or them basis will not lead to anything. It must be we, in a general sense, Earthlings. But there is still no such serious agreement. So, damn, that's a really amazing quote. Yeah, I mean that's a common thing you hear from people who've gone to space is sort of an under, like I mean, you're, I, most of them are still you know proud of their countries and their backgrounds, but also but. I've noticed, and this isn't universal, of course, but in a lot of people, not just cosmonauts, but also like U.S. astronauts and other, like, and European astronauts and that sort of thing, there's seeing the world as a whole kind of gives you a sense of perspective that it's perhaps harder to get uh, down here, um, but just kind of on the the importance of, of peace and, and uh, like, human flourishing. Yeah, a lot that of them have. That makes a lot of sense. All these cosmonauts, most of these cosmonauts, but you hear about, like you said, a lot of the other cosmonauts, like U.S. astronauts and whatnot, um, there's this humility that they have. And a lot of them say, like, yeah, space flight's great and it's important, but there's other important things that need to be done, too. So, you know, they don't just think they're the shit and that's it. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, and I think it would just make sense to see something at that scale, not only to humble you as kind of a, a mortal um, something that's impermanent, but also to have that perspective of like human beings as creatures and kind of like that existential idea of humanity. And I imagine that would change your priorities and how you view the world. Yeah, just looking at a photograph of the world is, you know, you get that sensation of feeling small and feeling like maybe your problems aren't the most important thing. And, you know, kind of that sense of hopefully that sense of unity between other people that share the planet but i can't imagine experiencing that firsthand Uh, it's got to be profound moving on to germany or the gdr which the good germany big fans of the good germany (laughs) um so i'm going to be talking about sigmund yond here uh he flew on soyuz 31 Sigmund Jan was born on February 13th, 1937. His father was a sawmill worker and his mother was a seamstress. He was born in the Voigtland area um, of what would be later become the GDR, so he was always in good Germany. When he was younger, he didn't have a clear idea of what career path he wanted to pursue. He actually ended up working as an apprentice in a book printing and typography place. He ended up volunteering for military school in 1955 and joined the Air Force for the National People's Army. In 1956, he joined the Socialist Unity Party, which was known as the East Germany Communist Party in the West. In the National People's Army, he underwent officer training, graduated in 1958, and became a second lieutenant. Um, he was sent in. He was sent to the USSR in 19. That's not right. It just says 196. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> Year 196. He traveled in time. He, he, tra- he went up in space. He traveled in time. Yeah, it's like it's like in the Superman movie where he goes around the planet. A lot and goes back in time. <laughs> yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> There's an umlaut on that A, right? There is, yeah. There is. I just okay, don't know so how to type Sigmund that easily. Yen. Sigmund Khan. It'd be, it'd be Sigmund Yan. Yan? Okay. Yeah, that's much better. I'm sorry to any German people out there who are listening and are cackling over our pronunciation. He underwent officer training, graduated in 1958, and became a second lieutenant. Yan 
was sent to the USSR in 1966 to train at the Yuri A. Gagarin Military Academy, where he performed well as a student. He would graduate in 1970, and then he would return to the GDR. After returning to the GDR, um, as we kind of said before, in 1976, the Eastern Bloc countries started discussing the Intercosmos program, um, but the GDR didn't have a lot of time to find a suitable candidate, um, so their government began immediately looking through annual reports on the GDR Air Force pilots to find candidates. And this was, like I said before, because they had to have like annual medical reports done, so it just made it, made it easier for them. So the commander of the GDR Air Force, Lieutenant General Wolfgang Reinhold, that's a cool name, um, interviewed hundreds of candidates without revealing the purpose of the meetings prior to the interviews. So when Jan was actually placed in the interview and asked to participate in spaceflight, he accepted immediately. He said he didn't even need two minutes to think about it. Uh, he was one of the nine final candidates. So these candidates were moved to the Hotel Cosmonaut in Star City, uh, which sounds like the coolest hotel in the world. Um, <laughs> this is a city I mentioned before that's in the Moscow Oblast. Uh, they would be trained for a total of 18 months, like I said. Um, I think it's really amazing. I mean, we already touched on it earlier that people who lived in rural areas, who had um, really humble beginnings and really working class backgrounds were able to go to space. Like, um, Jan's parents had the same occupations as my grandparents. And my uh, mother and her sisters really struggled to find education that was affordable and to further their careers. So that's really amazing that these people who lived in these rural areas and had working class parents were able to access this really amazing program. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That's one of the most inspiring and powerful, I think, aspects of this. Yeah, it's so cool. There were so many people in the USSR who did have backgrounds as peasants or laborers who even that first generation were able to go get educations thanks to the re revolution. Um, yeah, I mean, that was a... It's something... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, in, in the West, it's something we, we regard as such an elite thing. And, you know, only people who are really cut out for it can, can go on and make something of themselves. But, you know, these are these are just normal people who have normal lives or even difficult lives who are able to make something of themselves. And, and a lot of people did. Not even just the cosmonauts, but just a lot of people in the Soviet Union were able to get really good educations and... and I don't know, redirect your life. It was cool. Yeah. I mean, Yuri Gagarin worked in a, um, he was like a, before he was in the Air Force, I think he was like a, he worked in a furniture factory or, or something. I could be wrong. But then I know Valentina Tereshkova, she worked in a textile mill. Yeah. Yeah. There was another um, pilot um, who, who also worked in a furniture factory. Oh, no. It was the, it was uh, Mendez from Cuba. He, he did that for a while, too. Um, yeah. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, so, okay, so the crew, um, let's see, so a few days before the launch, um, so Jan was paired with Valery Bukowski um, during the training period, and a few days before the launch, they found out that they were going to be the ones in space. Um, and they ended up taking off on August 28, 1978, in Soyuz 31. Jan had publicly dedicated the flight to the 30th, 30th anniversary of the founding of the German Democratic Republic. While takeoff went well, so docking the Site 6 was really difficult because they had a stuck hatch and they had actually had to pry it open manually once they had docked and depressurized and everything. So something that's fun is that Jan's daughter had had a baby 
a couple days before the launch. So I think he might have been the first grandparent in space. I'm not sure. He was forty. Aww. He was forty-one. Grandpa uh-huh. of the oh, space. Wow. Young grandpa. Aw, I love it. Aww. Thank you, Ethan. So once they were on the station, uh, one of the major experiments was called the biosphere experiment, which is cool. So the cosmonauts actually studied the Earth's surface using multispectral MKF-6 cameras, as well as the regular Practica and Pentagon cameras. Um, And these are the cameras that they used to study um, geography and to look at air pollution, look at some of the meteorological processes going on at Earth, and to watch ocean currents. Um, And they'd also capture photos of interesting formations or like scientifically relevant formations on Earth. So while they were up there, Jan had brought with him a small doll of a children's show character called Sandmanchen. Uh, I'm I love probably story. pronouncing that wrong. This is funny. Yeah, um, and they, he was tasked with the purpose of shooting footage in space with the doll for a children's show. And his commander, uh, Vladimir Vladimir Kavalyanok, had brought a doll of the Russian mascot Masha, and the two. They recorded themselves with the dolls, but they they recorded themselves making the dolls marry each other. (laughs) Um, And uh, the GDR wasn't happy about their character getting married, um, and so they rejected the footage. (laughs) Um, So if you can imagine two brilliant grown man cosmonauts playing with dolls in space and marrying them to each other, um, it's just a really absurd thought, I think. Amazing. Um, yeah, that, that gave me a good chuckle. Um, so, anyway, after marrying their dolls, they left the space station on September 3rd. And after they had loaded everything up and transported their seats and rebalanced the spaceship and left, right after they left, Jan had realized that he left his shoes back in the space station. Um, oh. <laughs> after landing, he was without shoes, and he was worried about having to walk around in his socks. Um, luckily, the crew that picked them up one of the guys had an extra pair of shoes, and then he loaned it, loaned, loaned it. <laughs> he loaned um, his shoes to Jan before um, they left. So he didn't have to walk around in a spacesuit and socks, but kind of funny. You'd think there were, like, spacesuit boots. Yeah, I think, I wonder if they, like, can't walk around in them or something because it'll damage them. Because I was trying to figure that out, too. Yeah, I mean, that would make sense if, yeah, I don't know. It's that, It's just a funny story. Yeah, I thought it was funny. He, he, like, left his shoes. He was too busy goofing around with dolls, apparently. So, <laughs> <laughs> Something interesting that happened uh, is everything went really smoothly on this flight besides the hatch. Um, but on their way back, the commander missed the button for the parachute and had to, like, hit it again to deploy it, um, which caused them to have kind of a rough landing. They got dragged across the steps where they were landing. And their capsule rolled, um, and they were okay, but Jan said he always had back problems after it um, for the crash. Something that I thought was interesting, um, after the flight, Jan was asked to comment on what impressed him the most. He replied, quote, Looking at the Earth, the northern lights, the fragile-looking atmosphere, the sunrises that followed quickly one after another, these images are etched in my memory forever. From space, one thing is clear. This planet isn't so big that humans could not destroy it with their greed for profit. It's kind of, I think that relates to what we were talking yeah. about before. Yeah. Yeah, that quote had a big impact on me. Yan became a star in the GDR, um, and he had numerous schools and roads named after him. He was seen as sort of a people's hero. 
he would later be appointed to the chief of a department designed for selecting new cosmonauts. That never came to fruition, though, because the GDR reunified with bad Germany. Sad. Yeah, really sad. But he did work as a consultant for the German Aerospace Center afterwards. Jan sounds like a really cool guy because uh, he didn't want to be famous. He didn't want to be a people's hero, but he got tons of fan letters, and he answers every single letter um because he's still alive he lives with yeah. his wife but he, he answers said, every single letter he gets he said his wife scolds him for answering all the yeah mail. <laughs> i wanted to fill in some of the stories from like when he just real quick like when he got back and was a hero um so the cities so the russian city of jezkazgan um and the german cities of berlin karl markstadt um, which doesn't exist anymore. They renamed nice. they renamed it Chemnitz, but I would love Karl Marx. That sounds fucking awesome. And Strasbourg all made we'll bring him, it back. <laughs> all made him an honorary citizen. And just a couple of the, I mean, some these these sound apocryphal, but they were fun stories. So like, it said like he was all the only thing that people could talk about. There was uh, some famous bar, like old bar, and the GDR had this like if you went in, there was this giant picture of Yan on the wall, and it said. Uh, it was good advice for the nation's youth. Drink within reason, and you too can make it into space. <laughs> That's our slogan, too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then I liked this other story. I don't know where this came from. I just I found it, or it was it was in this book we read, which we'll talk about later. But like, um, was, I guess someone like he showed up for work in a crumpled shirt, and they were like, "Hey, why do you look like shit?" And he said, "Oh, it's it's Sigmund Yan. I, I put on the television last night. Sigmund Yan was on. I put on the radio. I heard Sig- Sigmund Yan. This morning I switched on the radio. Still Sigmund Yan. I couldn't bear to turn on the iron just in case." <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, I just I just thought those were funny. The other thing I wanted to say is that so his backup pilot was uh, his name was Eberhard Kohlner. Kohlner. I don't know how you say it, but. Uh, so he said he didn't regret that he didn't get to go into space. He has no regrets about it. his life turned out, um, even though he actually almost got the chance to go into space in, in 1989. But um, Germany, he had reunified, so he they weren't doing stuff with the Soviet Union. But um, when the Germanys reunified, he refused to be put back into the army or into the military. He said um, donning the uniform of the army would have meant to defect to the enemy. Um, and so he said that would have contradicted his, quote, basic political opinion. So I just I just Damn. thought that was that was like respect like he didn't hell yeah he was he was committed he, he was committed to socialism and he didn't uh, he didn't want to join the capitalist Germany's army hell yeah mad respect that's that's the coolest anything else for Germany I think that's it unless you can think of anything else that um, I didn't cover oh yeah no I so they asked Jan. Um, so they asked Jan about what he thought for the future of space travel and he said oh well. He said, we will certainly fly to Mars at some point. It's a suicide mission, but sooner or later, humans do everything they're physically capable of doing. I don't believe the visions of humans emigrating into space. Evolution has tied us to the Earth. I would rather walk in the woods of the Votland region than float through the narrow tubes of a spaceship forever. I like that. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah, so that's... I mean, he was in space, and he said he... he doesn't. I mean, that doesn't make him like an expert, but he knows more than I do So about space. Yeah, same. (laughs) I also feel like I was just saying. I also feel like it shows him accepting the limitations and uh, I don't know, just humanity and mortality. I think it's cool. It seems like a lot of these cosmonauts did experiments relating to the environment when they were um, in orbit as well. So like, yeah, I doing that watching glaciers melt 
um, understanding the change in the ozone layer, that must have such a large impact on you when you hear mainstream conversations about climate change or about space travel, especially um, the idea of colonizing other planets. Oh, yeah, I can't imagine. Um, so I'll, I'll talk about this in uh, like the next episode we do when we talk about fossil fuels, but um, the Soviet Union in particular, they have... In some senses, they had not a great track record with some environmental stuff, for sure. But uh, it was actually Soviet scientists who kind of developed the concept of, like, global warming or climate change as we now understand it. Oh, wow. Nice. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. That'll be a sweet-ass episode. Yeah. yeah. I'm really excited for that one. Anything else for Germany? I think that's it. Okay. So the next, so the next country was Bulgaria. Bulgaria, Bulgarian cosmonautics sort of started in 1964. So the, um, the, the Soviet military official in, Bor in Bulgaria was at an event in Bulgaria, and the commander-in-chief of the Bulgarian Air Force, he was talking to him. He's like, hey, a Bulgarian citizen, you should send him up into space on a Soviet ship. And he even suggested the possible candidates for the flight could be these four brothers, all pilots named Stamenkov, who all happened to be at this event. So that's kind of, I mean, they didn't, obviously, but I just thought that's funny. Like, hey, we have these four brothers who are pilots. You should send them all into space. <laughs> send them all up. Yeah, I feel like you, you got to save, you got to leave one behind, right? I mean, because otherwise you get a, like, what if something bad happened? And then, yeah, yeah. that could be well, bad. Yeah, that would be disastrous. <laughs> <Yikes>. <laughs> they didn't, anyway, they didn't, though. So the one who actually ended up being chosen was, he was a flight instructor for the Bulgarian Air Force named um, Georgi Ivanov. His 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 birth name was Georgi Kakalov, but um, or Kakalov, but apparently they made him change his last name when he got picked because uh, Kaka uh, is a rude word in Russia. So poor guy. <laughs> Man, imagine changing your last name when you're an adult because people think it's like funny. Because <laughs> or... it's a poop joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sucks. But um. Anyway, yeah, but so he he picked his he picked Ivan off because his dad's name was Ivan, and it's just it's patronymic, yeah, standard stuff. But so he said, um, when so when, in '61, Yuri Gagarin went into space. Ivanov was in pilot school, and he was doing an internship at a factory. And so he has this quote where he he said, "We heard the message that someone had gone to space through a speaker, but we never knew the name of the cosmonaut." All of us left our jobs, went out into the yard of the plan, began a spontaneous rally. Um, as Air Force cadet students, we felt involved in the flight since Gagarin was also a military pilot. Yeah, and so he went through the training. He Nothing exciting happened there as far as I can tell. And then in uh, April 10th, 1979, uh, he was on Soyuz 33, and they launched in the worst weather for a Soviet launch yet. Just, like, it was really windy, cloudy, but they did it anyway because I, I don't remember if they delayed it or not. I, I guess they thought it would, it would be fine. And, like, the launch was fine. They made it up successfully. But the problem is um, they got there, and they quickly realized there was a problem with the engine. Um, the gas line leading to the main pump wasn't working correctly. And this was basically a freak accident. It was this part that I read they'd tested over 8,000 times on the ground, just went out. And so it led to the first engine failure in um, personed spacecraft history, which, so I guess they got a first, they got a first in that sense. Yikes. Oh. <laughs> I mean, not the one you want, but... Uh, no. no, definitely not. Yeah, so that's a bummer. So the policy was to immediately start figuring out how to bring them back. They were like, "We're not gonna try and we're not gonna, you're not gonna go dock with um, Salyut. We're just we're gonna bring you back because it's it's too dangerous." So they um, so they started making the calculations. There was basically this incredibly slim chance of them returning successfully because they had to burn the engines for long enough to get the velo to get enough velocity to get through the atmosphere. 
but not burn too long or else they'd come in at too sharp an angle and burn up yeah so everyone like on the ground and in space they were trying to calculate this figure it out um apparently inside the mission control center the commander of the cosmonaut training was like trying to release everyone's tension um and so he advised Ivanov. So Ivanov had this really thick mustache, which um, apparently Soviet cosmonauts were very superstitious about mustaches, and so they always shaved, but Ivanov didn't. And so um, the Soviet cosmonaut commander, he was like, he was on the radio. He's like, all right, hey, push down, push really hard on your mustache so it fits through the visor on your helmet. And like, I just thought, I thought that was funny. <laughs> but um, so they did, at the, so they burned the engine, but it, um, it wouldn't, so this time it, instead of shutting off too early like it had been before it wouldn't shut off when they wanted to so they burned for too long ended up coming in at a much sharper angle than they wanted but they still made it through and they and they uh yeah they made it to the ground safely everyone was fine um ivanov became a uh, hero in bulgaria he gave a bunch of medals and honors um and eventually he became a politician in bulgaria um so he, but he was part of the communist party so after the collapse of the eastern bloc he they wouldn't let him be in politics because he was a communist. So, or he had been a communist. I don't know what his politics were at the time, but he ended, cause he ended up working in like a private, the private aerospace industry. I mean, I guess you don't, you didn't really have an option not to at that point. And uh, yeah, I, I guess they asked him about changes in his country. And he said like, uh, you know, democracy has brought freedom of speech. I don't know what that means, but on the negative <laughs> side, he, he said he thought it's um, the move away from socialism had led to a brain drain from Bulgaria. He was worried about so many, how many children and young people were drug addicts and how education was getting like really bad. And he lamented the decline of the Bulgarian space program, but uh, was nevertheless optimistic about the future of world space programs. So hopefully we don't let um, Georgiavinov down. Well, yep, that's uh, that's all I've got for um, Bulgaria. Take one. Did he ever shave his mustache? I don't think <laughs> so. Let me see if there's a picture of him old. No, I I think his old I think his old pictures. He still got that thick mustache. Oh yeah. Unless I'm thinking of the the other guy with the mustache, which mm. I'll talk about in a second. Oh yeah. <laughs> so many. Mustaches. I can't wait mustache to talk too. about that guy. Woo. Yeah. He does still have the <laughs> uh, mustache. Nice. Um. Yeah. When they were so when they were re-entering um they so like ethan said it was the engine burned too long and they came in too steep an angle luckily didn't die which is amazing but they were under um nine g's of force which the book described as imagine multiplying your body weight by nine times that um and they had trained to endure g forces for up to like 90 seconds but they were under these g forces for about three minutes um, and the crew down on earth was kept talking to them and saying, Hey, what's going on? Are you all right? And the commander just managed to get out, leave us because they kept shouting at them and they were terrified and they couldn't breathe. And, um, yeah, but surprisingly, like they, they made it through. Um, I can't imagine not passing out under those conditions, but somehow they didn't. So that was, that was striking for me. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely terrifying. Yeah. I mean, they were looking out the window and they could see flames um, coming off their uh, spacecraft. The book said that uh, the gas was igniting at like 3,000 degrees Celsius or something absurd like that, like unimaginably hot. So, um, yeah, and you, if you look in the book, there's actually these cool, really cool, but really frightening pictures of the scorched capsule. Man, based on all my research um, for space, Going to space sounds fucking terrifying, and I yeah. will not. 
Absolutely. When private space travel became a thing, my family talked about it much like the lottery, like something that you're never going to do, but you think about. And I, not even in my fantasies would I think about going to space. Yeah, it's, it's pretty terrifying. If I can just skip the like takeoff and landing and just be up there for a bit nope. <laughs> and then just poof, appear back on Earth, that'd be good. But skip all the scary death stuff. So, <laughs> scary want... death stuff? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want any of that, thanks. Hungary. Uh, Farkas? Hungary, yeah. This guy. This um, guy. He's pretty cool. Well, so he was. <laughs> he was, that's true. Yeah, he got pretty not cool. But... Uh, so, yeah, like Ethan said, the Russians are really superstitious. So anytime before they go into space flight, there are these rituals that they would undergo, and it was to ward off bad luck and whatnot. So they would go and visit the Memorial Wall in Red Square. They'd leave flowers where Gagarin and uh, four other cosmonauts who died on space missions were buried. Um, they would go visit his office, which was preserved the exact same way he left it when he died. They would ask his ghost for permission to go into space. And they wouldn't watch the carrier rocket being rolled out and set up. They would go get a haircut instead because they thought it was bad luck. And so, of course, after the last mission... Oh, you left out my favorite superstition. Oh, did I? What did I leave out? They would pee on the tire of the bus that brought them to the... Um, oh, to the, that's uh, right. To the, the <laughs> rocket. Wait, yeah. what? <laughs> Fuck yeah, this they, bus. <laughs> they specifically would pee on the um, back right wheel yeah, of yeah. the bus. And if you were a female cosmonaut, they'd give you a cup to pee in so you could oh. dump your urine on it. So. Nice. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Next time I, I ride on a Greyhound, I'll do that. Nice. Oh, no. <laughs> do it. Yeah, you and everyone else on the Greyhound. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's going to space flight today. Um, that's why we're peeing on the bus. So yeah, next time before you go take a plane, go pee on a bus somewhere. Anyway, uh, so because <laughs> of Ivanov's thick mustache, now they thought mustaches were another big superstition. And so there were a lot of Soviet cos- cosmonauts that complained about this guy, um, Bertland Farkas, because when he was selected, it was suggested that he shave his mustache off, and he refused. Because I guess he wanted to terrorize the other people he was going up to space with. So... Farkas uh, was born August 2nd, 1949. Um, he was born to a shoemaker and a housewife in the village of Gilhaza, I think is how you pronounce it, in northeastern Hungary. Um, he had no thoughts of becoming a cos- cosmonaut when he was a kid. Um, he was actually enamored with playing soccer, and he was really good at soccer. He also was interested in pursuing a career as a mechanic, but he was convinced by one of his classmates to join a club, and a flying club, so they could learn to become pilots. The interesting and kind of funny thing is... He passed his medical examinations to get into this club, but his friend who convinced him to get in failed to pass the medical examinations and wasn't admitted, so he went on without his poor friend. While he was in this program, he learned to pilot glider planes and to parachute. Uh, And after he graduated school, um, him and another really good friend of his, Bella Maggiari, uh, joined flight school together. They passed the entry exams, um, and they enrolled in the engineering program at the Killian Georgi Flight Technical College. He enrolled against his mother's wishes. Um, His mom felt that the occupation would be too dangerous, and he went in anyway. So here's this trend (laughs) I think you see in this guy of being kind of defiant. 
So after two years in school, he decided to become a fighter pilot and he continued his education at the Krasnodar Military Aviation Institute in the USSR. Once again, he was accompanied by his friend Bela Magyari um, and both of them would return to Hungary in 1972 to join the Hungarian People's Army together. Um, they were assigned as national defense fighters and so Farkas would work at, as an instructor until 1977. Around that time, Hungary started looking for candidates for cosmonauts and both him and his good friend Magyari were actually selected to be the final candidates, and so they would go to Moscow to train together, which is really cool. Um, Farkas eventually got paired with Valery Kubasov, who was a veteran of Soyuz 6 and the Apollo Soyuz test program. They were both really intimidated by him, but apparently Valery was a super, super friendly guy, and just after spending a little bit of time with him, they, they got along super well, and all those worries about them not getting along or being intimidated kind of went away, which is nice. So after training, Kubasov and Farkas were selected to be the main crew, while Janevikov, there we go, and Magyari were selected as the backup crew. Uh, apparently this decision was really, really difficult because both teams performed equally well, and they actually said that if it was possible, they would have sent both teams up to space. I think his, his friend was disappointed a little bit, but... He was happy to see his friend go up. And beforehand, um, Farkas actually said that, you know, we, we know that only one of us can go up, but I think I'd be just as happy if my friend went up as if Magyari went up. Um, which is cool. That sense of camaraderie between the teams who are, are kind of competing for the same thing is, is a cool thing to have. So Soyuz 36 went up at... On May 26, 1980, um, takeoff and docking went off without a hitch. Everything was fine. And they began their research uh, soon after docking. Oh, something that's funny. So while they were training, they had to spend him, Farkas and Magyari both had to spend some time uh, sitting pantsless in a tub of plaster uh, in front of Oh yeah, a bunch of other people, which was 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 pretty humorous. And the reason for doing that is because they needed an exact plaster mold of their bodies, uh, because there's so much force when they take off that they have to have an exact um, mold of their backs, so that they can bear the pressure properly when they're when they're taking off and landing. And so, yeah, they sort of just described that as a humorous situation where they had to sit in these plaster casts without pants on together in front of a large group of people Sam, who were helping out <laughs> you know we <laughs> all love romantic. that yeah <laughs> holding hands uh, because like who else would you rather sit pantsless in a giant pl- vat of plaster with than your best friend dudes rock dude. <laughs> just two dudes I can dudes. see you and Taylor doing that just guys being dudes yeah, <laughs> just kind of, yeah me I want to Taylor come on the podcast and <laughs> sit in a plaster cast with me anyway <laughs> um yeah so once they were up there uh the cosmonauts took photographs of the carpathian mountains um and some other areas of archaeological and anthropological significance and recorded various geological features um they looked at things like fractures in the earth's, earth's crust where plates were and they studied oceanic and meteorological phenomena so they also measured the vital signs of the cosmonauts before during and after the trip and they started doing studies uh, melting and crystallizing very various substances in weightlessness um, because it was easier to make these things in zero gravity, these crystals and stuff that could be used in electronic equipment than it was back on Earth. 
so by the time they return on June 3rd, they spent about 189 hours in space. After they returned, um, he was he was heavily awarded, um, and he started. He became a brigadier general. He was Hungary's military attaché between '96 and '97 to the Hungarian embassy in Washington D.C. That probably Three worked out well. Months after, yeah, right. Three months after he got there, he got stopped by police, and he was charged with driving while intoxicated. But he said that he only had a single glass of wine. After that, they launched an, the uh, investigation into the charge, and he was asked to resign. Um, it's not great. Um, so the U.S. asked the embassy to give him a waiver for diplomatic immunity, but that was denied in December. Um, yes, he got in trouble for that. <laughs> he was required to retire from the Air Force, and I don't think they officially said that was why, but but he was basically asked to, to resign. Um, so afterwards, uh, so he returned to the U.S., because that's lame, uh, and he started to work at the U.S. There. <laughs> started to work at the U.S. headquarters um, of Orion 1980, which was a venture, I think a space venture, he jointly founded with another astronaut, um, John McBride, um, and it was to promote manufacture of space technologies. It's not great. He then became a member of the Hungarian Democratic Forum, and he got involved with the Hungarian Conservative Political Party, which is shitty. Yeah, I was going to say the uh, the Hungarian Democratic Forum is a far-right nationalist uh, Christian Dominionist party. Uh, oh, great. So you, I didn't uh, look him up. You hate to see it. Eeks. Yeah. I, I figured with that name it was something bad, but I didn't look it it's up. It's not so. great. Saying that and then saying he's a Hungarian conservative was enough for me. Yeah, to be I like, mean, being a hung, I mean, if you're a fucking Hungarian conservative, like that means very specific things. <laughs> right. <laughs> so basically, fuck this guy. Gross. Yeah, fuck this guy. Cool that he went to space, but fuck this guy. I think that's all I have to say about him. So he's still friends with his his buddy who didn't get to go up in space. But well, hopefully, I wonder. I wonder if that guy's also a uh, far right nationalist. Yeah, he kind of looks like it. From this picture of them as older men, they they both look like dudes who would be sitting in a bar talking about nationalist shit. So, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I should give him more credit than that, or give him a chance, but... I feel like if you're someone's best friend, your political views are probably pretty close. Yeah. But, yeah, that's Farkas. So, who's next? Uh, next is one of my favorites... The country of Vietnam. Hell yeah. Ooh. Going Ooh. in the complete opposite yeah, direction exactly. from Hungarian nationalism. Yep. Yeah. yeah, no, this yeah. Um, <laughs> this one's good. This is probably the coolest. Yeah, this, uh, this is one of my favorite. Well, I mean, he's tied for me with um, the next one, but uh, no, so so next, yeah, so next up is Vietnam. Um, they had just finished uh, kicking out the U.S. imperialists in 1975, as well as repelling, <laughs> yeah, as well as repelling a Chinese invasion in 1979. Um, so on uh, the 17th of May, 1979, the Soviet Union and Vietnam signed an agreement of a cooperation under which Vietnam would become the ninth intercosmos nation, and they selected this guy, uh, Pham Thuan, to go into space. I did confirm that's how you pronounce it. I watched a thing on Vietnamese news about him. Oh, King. nice. Proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, no. So he he's got a he's got a cool story. He was he was the second person in his village to go to secondary school, and so and he became a fighter pilot during the resistance war against America. 
So originally he couldn't be a pilot because his eyesight had gotten fucked up from drinking polluted water as a kid. But as the war continued, they needed more pilots, so they kind of loosened the restrictions a little bit, so he was allowed in. Because of that, he showed up three months late to the Soviet pilot training school, but from what I can tell, he caught up to the rest of the class really quick, and uh, he became a pilot at the same time like that. the rest of that class did, so super yeah, cool dude. Yeah, I think he received, like, top marks. Yeah, no, he was, uh, every, yeah, everything I can tell is he was, he was great at it. Um, so Pham Thuan is the first Vietnamese pilot to shoot down an American B-52 uh, Stratofortress bomber in air-to-air combat. Amazing. It's interesting because the uh, the U.S. still denies, or at some point, I think still do. They they denied that um, it was shot down by a plane. They said it was shot down by a surface-to-air missile. I I just I, I shockingly I don't believe um, I I try to view American military propaganda with a grain of salt. I think it's just this idea that like oh no they couldn't. Uh, it was a bunch of rice farmers. They couldn't uh, shoot down our fucking planes. Right. Yeah. He did the same with a with a another Phantom. fighter jet. Yeah, he shot down F four yeah. Phantom. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, no, he didn't do yeah. it. There were no, then, did, none shot they down in done that, that period. Yeah. So fuck that. Um. Yeah. But then um he served. Yeah. He 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 carried out like over two hundred combat flights in five years, like all through to the end of the uh, end of the war. So yeah, war hero. Um, support our troops. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, but so then he got, like, he and the other guy was uh, Buiton Lim. They both got sent to Moscow to train. Um, and so, Another war hero. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and, um, so Pham Tuan went to Moscow with his wife, Tan, and their three-year-old daughter. There was a recent interview. He said that his wife had a hard time at first getting used to life in Star City, but the wives of the other cosmonauts helped her. Like, te- they taught her, like, how to cook traditional Russian dishes and showed her around Moscow. Um, and, and so the launch happened on July 23rd, 1980. And it was happening during the 1980 Olympics in Moscow, where at the opening ceremonies, the cosmonauts up in Sol- at, uh, on Salyut had sent a message to the opening ceremony. And when Soyuz 37, the one that was uh, Pham Tuan was on, they took a break. When it launched, they took a break from the games to broadcast the launch. And so before they launched, Pham said... Uh, this flight is being carried out in an anniversary year for my country when the entire population is celebrating the 50th anniversary of the founding of the Communist Party of Vietnam, the 90th anniversary of the beloved leader Ho Chi Minh, and the 35th anniversary of the proclamation of Vietnam's independence. So just a super cool year. Damn. And yeah, and they, and, and they made it up into space successfully, and Pham Thuan became the first Asian person to go into space. Yeah, uh, I mean, the U.S. hadn't even sent a white woman up. Represent... Yeah, but so, but yeah, no, Fontaine was the first, like, yeah, first, first Asian person to go into space. So one of the big assignments, so that, I mean, I haven't really talked about a lot of the experiments because it's just science shit, but this, I thought this was cool. One of the big assignments that he had um, on Salyut was to study the effects of the U.S.'s chemical warfare on Vietnam's environment and agriculture. Oh, wow. Yeah, they were using, like, multispectral photography to basically help determine the feasibility of like reclaiming forests and rice paddies in areas that were really badly damaged by all the um, U.S. chemical weapons. And the data also provided, uh, it said it provided the basis for compiling a true geographic map of Vietnam and enabled reserves of coal, oil, and natural gas to be sought. And so, yeah, so they they made it back down just fine. Yeah, but so he was with, um, the cosmonaut he was paired with was Victor Gorbatko. They both, and they both made it down, and I, I, as far as I can tell, they both 
they, they they became friends after that, which, I mean, I imagine it would be hard not to, going in space. But uh, they made it back, uh, and so Fantoine said, um, Brezhnev pinned a gold star for the hero of the Soviet Union and the Order of Lenin on my chest. And he then he then kissed and hugged me like he was my father. Aww. Yeah. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah. So Fama and Gorbaka, they they went then they went to Vietnam together and like everyone like, got celebrated there because everyone in Vietnam was understandably like pumped at having a Vietnamese cosmonaut. And Fama was able to show Gorbaka his home village. They planted some trees in various sites to commemorate all of all of this. And and I read that Gorbaka he went back to Vietnam later after enough time that he was able to sit in the shade of those trees. Oh. Oh wow. Yeah. yeah. That's so that's really that's cute. gorgeous. Yeah. So um, Pham Tuan was in the Vietnamese military until his retirement. and But as far as I can tell, he's still a member of the Vietnam National Assembly, um, which, is, Hell yeah. which is pretty cool. Here, the picture I'm putting for, for you guys, this is uh, Pham Tuan and Victor Gorbatko like 30 years later. So. Aw, mm. couple of buddies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So that was, uh, yeah, so 1980. Um, Vietnam sent up a cosmonaut with the Soviet Union. Super, super cool guy. Super cool. Uh, just yeah, I just I love that story. Yeah, he's he's definitely one of my favorites. Oh yeah, absolutely. What a, what a cool cosmonaut, and what a, what a cool story. Yeah, absolutely. It. Yeah, it's and then like I said, it's tied with this next one though. So which, yeah, take it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Oh yeah, cool. Um, let me let's see. Make sure I have this. I also have a quote from Castro, so that's gonna be a long one. Oh yeah, he's <laughs> good. That man loved to talk. I love him, but... We're going to be here for like three hours while I read this Castro speech, so everyone buckle in. Oh, I'm buckled in. <laughs> I've peed right, on yeah. the bus. <laughs> Wheel drenched. Gross. Okay. <laughs> it's gross. Um, so the next person I'm going to talk about is Arnaldo Tamayo Mendez um, of the Soyuz 38. Uh, he's Cuban, and this guy's also really, really cool. Arnaldo Tamayo Mendez was born on January 29, 1942, in Baracoa, Guantanamo, to an impoverished family. Both of his family, both his mom and his dad, passed away when he was less than a year old, so he ended up being raised by his aunt and his uncle. But this guy, he was not only the first Cuban in space, he was also the first Latin American space and the first black person in space. Uh, Hell yeah! Yeah. That's awesome. And he always said that he owed everything to the revolution. Oh, yeah. Um, Hell, yeah. One of his quotes early in the book is, uh, or early in the chapter is, I had dreamed of flying since I was a child, he mused. But before the revolution, all passed into the sky were barred because I was a boy who came from a poor black family. I had no chance of getting an education. Of course, that changed um, thanks to the Cuban revolution. Um, So early on, he had to start working as a kid because his family, him and his aunt and uncle were so poor. Uh, but he started working as a shoe shiner and would sometimes sell vegetables on the streets. He eventually found employment delivering milk, but he also worked as a laborer in a furniture factory, which I mentioned before, um, which you said Yuri Gagarin did too. So I was I cool. was incorrect. Um, I was incorrect about that. Yuri Gagarin was in a, uh, his father was a carpenter, which is why, I, which is why I thought that, but he worked in a, uh, Oh fuck! It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. No, it was <laughs> yeah, a foundry. He worked in a foundry. So um, yeah, he so this guy worked as a laborer in a furniture factory. So by thirteen years old, he was an apprentice carpenter. Um, he ended up joining the Association of Young Rebels during the Cuban Revolution. They were a group that was against the Batista regime, and they protested regularly against the regime. <clears throat> After the revolution, he attended the Rebeldi Technical Institute. 
um, where he started aviation lessons. Um, he ended up graduating the next year with excellent grades and decided that he wanted to become a pilot. He was selected to be sent to the Soviet Union, but he was initially restricted um, due to poor health. I mean, he was later given permission to go and begin flight training, so I guess he ended up passing after that. Uh, so between 1961 and 62, he actually learned how to train MiG-15 fighter jets. He ended up returning to Cuba in 62, and he entered the Cuban Revolutionary Guard as a flight instructor. Um, he also joined the Cuban Communist Party. So during the Cuban Missile Crisis, yeah, uh, Mendez so cool. flew 20... This is really cool. He, he flew 20 reconnaissance missions, and uh, it was his job. He was one of the people who would intercept and uh, like redirect American aircrafts that were coming in and violating Cuban airspace, which is awesome. So in 1967, he would get married. Um, that's when he became a co- member of the Communist Party in 67, after the Cuban Missile Crisis. He was sent to Vietnam to study the war in Vietnam between them and the U.S., and he returned in 1968 and got promoted to military pilot first class. So the Cuban armed forces started looking for a cosmonaut in 1976. Um, and by 1977, he was selected amongst three other candidates to be sent to Moscow for a four-week period of training. So the two finalists ended up being Arnaldo Mendez and Jose Lopez Falcon, who was a captain with the Cuban Air Force. Mendez was paired with Yuri Romanenko, who flew on the Soyuz 26 mission. And Romanenko really liked the guy. Uh, apparently, Arnaldo Mendez was had a really excep- exceptional sense of purpose, as Romanenko commented. He also said that he was very determined, but was also very kind and had a sharp sense of humor. Apparently, Mendez was a really passionate guy, really happy and outgoing. And when but when he got into the spacecraft, he was he was just focused and did a really good job. Was a really sharp guy. Mendez and Romanenko took off on September 18, 1980, and it went well. They docked with Soyuz 6 two days later. Mendez, being the social outgoing guy who was, was the first to float through the hatch and greet uh, Lenoid Popov and Valeria Ryuman. After welcoming them, they actually got congratulatory messages from Brezhnev and Castro themselves. And before getting to work, uh, instead of working right away, uh, because they were being broadcasted down to earth, they actually started doing somersaults to kind of <laughs> celebrate and show off. So it carried out a whopping 27 experiments while they were up on the space station. Growing various crystals was one of them. Um, they actually studied the change in the foot arch and weightlessness and to see what impact it would have. They studied the psychomotor adaptations and they studied space adaptation syndrome. Um, they also studied growth of yeast and they looked at Cuba from space to look for possible mineral and oil deposits. Um, there was a... Mendez actually... Oh, oh go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, Cuban scientists had already been using um, some of the, like, photography from Salyut to study, like, pollution and weather patterns, which I thought was... Uh, over Cuba, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, yeah. And Cuba's, Cuba's always had a very environmentalist approach to the way they do things. First carbon negative uh, country. Yeah, it's yeah. wild. Um, yeah, and it's just cool that they had been, they had started this so early, early on in the game. So they've been doing this for a while. Mendez, uh, I know they mentioned he, after a few days on the space station, he, he started feeling sick, I think, just from the weightlessness. Um, but I think he was fine to do um, experiments. They just told him not to do any strenuous exercises because you have to exercise when you're in space for a pe- long period of time. Um, although I'm not sure how much a week would make a difference. 
So, uh, when they had returned, by the time they returned, they spent the standard seven days and 21 hours in space. Uh, they were both awarded the Hero of the Soviet Union and the Order of Lenin, and Mendez was also awarded Hero of the Republic of Cuba, Order of the Bay of Pigs, and Order of Playa Giron. I don't know what that one is. I didn't look it up. He also got a stamp. He was on a stamp that they produced to celebrate the achievement. So after, here, I'll, I'll read this first. After the flight, um, he served as the vice president of the Society of Cuban-Soviet Friendship, um, and he became a member of the National Assembly of People's Power in 1980. That was the Cuban National Legislature, um, and he represented his home municipality of Baracoa. So Fidel Castro gave a really passionate speech about um, basically the success of the mission and Cuban-Soviet friendship, sort of the achievements of the revolution. Uh, I have a I have a good excerpt from that that I think... I mean, the whole thing is good, but I don't want to read the whole thing because it's like six paragraphs or something. Um, but Castro said, with the revolution, the doors open up for him. Uh, being Mendez, as they did for all our youth, uh, as they did for all our people. The opportunity to study, the opportunity to excel, the opportunity to serve his people were some of his options as a humble youth, and his humble beginnings have been referred to, repeated to, insisted on, because it really constitutes a symbol. The fact that our first cosmonaut and the first cosmonaut from Latin America is the first cosmonaut from Africa. It is not our whim to say that he also is the first cosmonaut from Africa, because Tamayo an eminently black man who <clears throat> who also has in his veins Indian and Spanish blood is a symbol of the blood which, as demonstrated by the most severe test of our fatherland's history, gave rise to our people. It is African blood. It is Indian blood. It is Spanish blood. That is why we say he also symbolizes Africa because he is the first descendant of Africa to travel into space. It is a symbol that a man from such humble origin has attained such extraordinary success. Of course, only the revolution and the revolution alone has made it possible for a youth such as Tamayo, which is his first last name, to have that possibility. Um, Fuck, I'm tearing up. Yeah, it's really good. And that's that's the same thing that, that he said, Arnaldo said, is that he owed everything to the revolution. So, yeah, really incredible to see such achievements. Uh, he's still working. He now is the technical and training officer for the International Civil Aviation Organization, and he's married and has a daughter. So, yeah, and as that's that's as far as I can as far as I can tell, I think he's still in the uh, like he's still in the in his committee for the defense of the revolution. Yeah, I think he is. I think he's still still working in government, which is really cool. People, you know, they talk about democracy and how many people do we have like this guy in our government working for us? Like, there's no one. There's there's no one who's advocating for people like that and who come from such humble backgrounds as Castro said, but yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, it's amazing that. Yeah. That one's one of the, one of the most beautiful, just, I mean, Fidel said it perfectly, but yeah, it's just such a beautiful, such a beautiful summary of, of the whole thing. Yeah. Who's next? Mongolia. Uh, Mongolian is very difficult. So please forgive me. Um, his name is Yogyar Demidin Garagcha, I believe. That was good. If you saw it spelled, you'd be like, "Oh wow, that's a lot of letters." Or at least that's what I—at <laughs> least that's what I thought. And so, so he was a—he was an airplane engineer in the Mongolian People's Army and a member of the Mongolian People's Revolutionary Party. I feel like so I didn't know this until like a couple years ago, like fairly late after becoming a communist. I didn't know about Mongolia's like revolutionary history 
and it's it's pretty cool yeah people don't talk about mongolia a lot when it comes to like revolutionary history yeah because they had a long they had a long run as as socialists yeah and so he was the son of a uh basically a livestock cat like a cattle herder and breeder um and he was born in a yurt like as part of a traditional nomadic group yeah he's the eldest son in this big family like his his dad never went to school his mom only had a few years of schooling um because they had this yeah traditional nomadic this traditional uh, nomadic lifestyle, but uh, but he became an an airplane engineer in the Mongolian People's Army, and he became a member of the Mongolian People's Revolutionary Party. So Mongolia didn't have a huge air force, um, so they couldn't find somebody to meet the requirements in the um, military pi- pilots. So the Soviet Union was like, okay, open it up to civilians. Like let's uh, like yeah, let's let's broaden this out. And so I think he was he was in the I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure of the exact, I think he was in the military, I'm not sure, but anyway, so, so the way that Mongolian names work, uh, is, um, so Guragcha is his, is his name, and Jugur, uh, Demedin is a patronymic, and he doesn't have, he doesn't go by a last name, because a lot of Mongolian folks don't, as far as I can understand, I would love to be corrected if I'm incorrect here. Um, in the, when the communists took over in the 1920s, they kind of stopped using surnames to undercut the historical class systems that the names denoted. Um, so anyways, but so his name is Garagcha, um, and I guess, yeah, uh, Jugur Demedin is sort of a last name. Um, yeah, anyway, so he got selected. They interviewed his father, actually, and he was saying, um, when my son was small, he rode in horse races. Of course, I'm fond of him, and I wanted him to become one of the best riders. Now he is putting his foot in the stirrup of a spaceship. I want him to honorably occupy his place among the worthy sons of our Earth. Um, I thought that was I thought that was cute. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's cool. Um, just like the put his foot in the stirrup of a spaceship. I like that a lot. Yeah, I like space that too. Cowboy. Space cowboy. See, <laughs> oh space cowboy. Space cowboy. Some call me a gangster love. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, but so. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Some people call me Gangkwai. I can't pronounce his name. I'm sorry. Gorakcha. I guess his name means. Is that how you pronounce? I, I don't. I don't. I've never heard it pronounced, but I I looked up IPA, and I, as far as I can tell, that's how you pronounce it. So, uh, one thing I like about Mongolia's flag is if you look at it, it kind of looks like it could be a spaceship. Oh, it does. Oh, oh I just realized that. Yeah, because it's got a star and like yeah, I don't know. I think it's kind of fun. Um, but so on uh, the twenty second. Or at least I don't know what their flag looks like now, but the when they were a People's Republic, it looked like a spaceship. So on the twenty second of March, nineteen eighty one, he was on Soyuz thirty nine, and it launched. And when they arrived, they recorded it for TV. Um, so they were showing, broadcasting on television. The it showed the new arrivals like floating into Salyut six to be welcomed. And when he came in, Garakcha released a bundle of red flags, and the flags were like floating in the into the station. It was it was pretty cool. Yeah, while they were up there, they were um, um, so they were doing studies on like natural resources, space medicine, biology, space communications, that kind of thing. The natural resources were a big one. Like they were trying to get a kind of yeah overall picture and study where um, resources and the geological stuff in Mongolia. So they had analysis from uh, Salyut and some airplanes and ground laboratories doing uh, analysis at the same time and comparing results. So that's kind of cool. On the twenty uh, seventh of March, while they were up in there, while they were up on Salyut, the so I don't know what this means, but as far as I can tell, the first ever holograms were transmitted from Salyut. It's like the first ever holograms outside of a lab were on this transmitted from Salyut six to the ground using a 
helium neon gas laser. I don't know like what that means or how that works, but it sounded kind of cool. So uh, good work, good work them. And they they made it back, no problems. Um, <laughs> so because he came from a nomadic family, there was not really a place of birth registered for him. But like in trying to share all the information about him, they were like, oh, where's, where was he born? So Mongolia was like, okay, well let's just build a village where uh, he was born the area where he was born and they named it cosmos and that's where they said he was from that's the coolest which is, which that's is just great. the coolest thing um yeah well and so that was my favorite part of the show. <laughs> yeah i love that um and so in the uh so after the people's republic stopped being a thing after they stopped doing socialism unfortunately the government was trying to like establish like trying to establish surnames again like they were like ah we got to get the surnames again but that was like a hundred years ago so a lot of people didn't know so Gragcha, he couldn't find his ancestral surname, so he chose um, Sansar, which is the Mongolian word for the cosmos, as his as his surname, which I think is really cool. Mm. Um, so, yeah, when he returned, uh, he was the chief of staff for the Mongolian Air Force, and he was the head of a scientific organization, like a, a Mongolian scientific organization. I couldn't find the name of. Um, and then he was the minister of defense from 2000 to 2004. And then for four years after that, he was in Mongolia's state great Kural, which is their parliament. And he's, uh, yeah, he's he's still alive as well. Um, I think he's retired now, but I'm not uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, but that's that's all I got. Um, do you want to take us home with fucking Romania? I have some commentary on this guy, but I'll let you. Yeah, I'll let you do the, it. <laughs> yeah, the the like, <laughs> yeah. Please help, because like the the back end of the chapter. Oh my it was god! Weird, so. Oh, awful. I was I was like, I don't know what's going awful. on here. So I'll, I need a little. So, this guy. It's there's some funny things about this. Um, yeah. So, I'm not even gonna be able to pronounce his name. So, Dimitri Doran. So he's got two first names, Dimitri Doran, they're hyphenated, Pruniaru. Uh, he's a Ramon- Romanian cosmonaut. Um, he was born on September 22nd, 27th, sorry, September 27th, 1952 in Brezhov, Romania, um, to an automobile engineer and a teacher. Um, he was always interested in rockets and aviation. And so he built model airplanes and model rockets with his classmates. He was awarded bronze for the design and construction of a rocket launching facility and gold for design of the classroom for the future education, uh, which is cool. Um, Sounds like a bright guy. He graduated from physics and mathematics high school in 1971, and he started pursuing a career in aircraft design. He enrolled in the Faculty of Aerospace Engineering uh, of the Bucharest Polytechnic Institute and received what is the equivalent of a master's, essentially. So he had to undergo compulsory military service, and he was approached as a candidate. Um, this is—it's kind of funny because he didn't—it didn't—he didn't act like he had a lot of interest. He just kind of wanted to finish up his service. Like he—he—he he, he sounded like like he said, "Oh, you're gonna be." They, so they came to him and they said, "Hey, you're gonna take part in the selection to do this," and he was like, "Oh, that—that that sounds like an interesting idea," but he didn't seem that interested. But when they offered a full free military, like top end medical checkup, that's what got him to take it. That and he wanted to get out of marching so he could go visit his wife instead, which is which is sweet. But so Romania is Romania is complicated. The 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 lost final uh, Proles Pod episode was on Romania. And the main like the main takeaway that I had from studying Romania for that was like, wow, I did not enjoy studying this because it's like such a weird, complicated history. Because like a lot of it, like a lot of the history of socialist Romania, like 
fucking sucks. But like, I mean, it's better than post-socialist but like it's just it's just so weird i don't know but like this guy in particular in the book like in the main book that we used for sources here like he definitely had the longest chapter because like they interviewed him and he wrote the introduction and i don't know i i thought he came across as such a prick in every quote yeah in in ways yeah he did (laughs) i think (laughs) yeah so like he what he said, I only wanted to accomplish my military service, which was compulsory for all healthy young men in Romania in those times, and to return to the factory I was working in and to my family. For all higher education graduates, the compulsory military service lasted six months, and it was supposed and was performed in the reserve officer school where we were supposed to learn everything about aircrafts, blah, blah, blah. I was reluctant to the proposal of the commander to take part in the selection of candidates for the Cosmonauts program because I thought my professional future was already defined. I knew little about Romania's involvement in space activities, even though Romania had been part of the Intercosmos program since 1968. So, you know, that doesn't sound great. Um, we had already launched about 17 different rock devices on board Russian rockets in the framework of the Intercosmos program. Uh, the commander therefore briefly explained to us that to us about Romania's involvement in space activities and the latest level of cooperation with within which participating countries were supposed to send their own candidate cosmonauts onto an orbital station. Uh, where they would perform complex scientific experiments. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he kind of sounds like, hey, like I'm, I'm too good for this, or I mean, something yeah, like that. I, I, yeah, I just yeah. got this really weird. Um, it's, it, I just it's got a this weird response. vibe from him, from like all the quotes they had from him and his recollections, rec- recollections of the program. Yeah, it, it's a little weird. Um, <laughs> he took it because of that. Um, Ultimately, because he wanted that military checkup and he wanted, um, he wanted to see his wife, like, which is understandable. Um, he didn't want to go and do his military marching that he was required to do. Let me see if I can find some other quotes that are kind of weird. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> weird quotes in particular. No, there are, there are a lot of them. Um, there are a lot of like, cause he definitely has the most. He has the longest chapter in this book. I, there's a quote of him like kind of talking shit about. Arnaldo Tamayo Mendez because they were training at the same time. He's like, oh, they just set him up because he's black. Wow. Yeah, that was not great. Um, Jeez. I think he's got some uh, some issues there. Yeah. Sounds like a little racism. So, um, yeah, not great. Uh, it, it's also weird that he was, like, not interested, but he, like, had a childhood that involved a lot of aircraft interest. So yeah. I, I mean, I think I definitely I, I, I'm calling bullshit on him, like not being interested in doing it. Like, you, of course, you want to go to fucking space. You're a pilot. <laughs> You'd hope. Right. So I don't know if it, he was just if he just has an attitude or what. Yeah, I uh, I got the I got the impression he had a fucking attitude. Yeah. He sounds like, an <laughs> He's like I'm not that interested. And, like, side swipes well, his well, and so and so like, <laughs> yeah. And so like when he got back, um, there's this quote from him like. There was this, uh, there was this gymnast who got like the hero of. So let me find this quote because I was like, um, oh yeah. There, so there was there was a gymnast who got like the maximum points in the Olympics in 1976 and was like famous all over the world. Here's the quote: uh, She received a Romanian or a Romanian order that was lower than mine. I was the hero of Romania. She was the hero of socialist labor order, also a very high one, but not as high as mine. Uh, <laughs> so like a Donald Trump sentence. Huh? Awards. <laughs> Many people are saying this. Yeah, it's just like, dude, shut up. <laughs> yeah, and he was well. He was also saying that I, I'm probably getting ahead of myself, but um, Cusco didn't like want another 
hero in Romania because he was. Well, I think so he's the only other one with a here with a uh, that award. Yeah. So the the thing with Ceausescu is that he was like. That's how you pronounce it, old oh, man. It's Romanian's hard, man. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. It took it took us it took us forever to figure out how to pronounce Ceausescu when we were doing that. Ceausescu. Uh, okay. Ceausescu. Ceausescu. I believe. Okay. <laughs> Don't. Yeah. He was like. He had some absolutely fucking terrible ideas in politics. Uh-huh. Uh, Ceausescu did. But, like, technically he was better than the capital's restoration. So, like, I don't know. <laughs> right. So, like, so when he's talking all this shit about Ceausescu, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I get it. But, like, mm-hmm. like, like he's complaining about, like, oh, I didn't get I didn't get in the newspapers. They didn't publish enough pictures of me because uh-huh. uh, all this. Or, uh, no, like, um, Prenario in the. In the book, he's like, "Oh, they didn't publish enough pictures of me in the newspaper." Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, and he, it's I don't know. I just got. I just I did not. I did not enjoy reading about. This I didn't man. like this guy much. Um, yeah, he was also saying like, "Oh, I picked up like a slight Russian accent while I was training," and Charshevsky uh, wow. like, didn't bull, like, which is, which is bullshit. Well, no, and that's bullshit because the the books specifies that like the two Romanian guys were so shitty at Russian that they had to bring exactly. In extra, instructors yeah so they had to um they had to get instructors from the um patrice lumumba university so Mm, yeah so part so part of the training yeah so they first off this guy okay so he got rejected um he was overweight so he had to lose some and he had the flu apparently so he had to lose some weight and then get reassessed and they accepted him the second time and then like ethan said like their Russian, their like ability to speak Russian was just abysmal, um, and so they like got extra training and got a special instructor from the Patrice Lumumba University to help them, and so now he's saying, "Oh yeah, I picked up this Russian accent, and Charyshevsky <laughs> like didn't like my accent, and so he wouldn't look at me." And I, I don't know, this guy's just weird and arrogant and all That's over the so place. Dumb. And- it's like one of those people yeah. who like visit somewhere for a second and then like uh-huh. pick up a fake accent to seem culture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't this know. How we it's, do with it's weird. It's weird. It's just, um, yeah. Yeah. So that yeah, it's this is a weird chapter. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, it's just so long and there's so much shit in it. Yeah, one of the one of the funny things that so once that like they they went through their training, um, just like everyone else, they. Launched uh, May 14, 1981. So they were the ninth country to send someone in space on a Soviet spacecraft. So they were given these um, diploma things that were to be stamped while they were in space. It was like a certificate of like, oh, hey, look, you, you did this thing. They came in this um, oh, green yeah, paper. Yeah. <laughs> and the paper said something like cleared to go to space. Something like that. And they they had someone help them construct a box that was the same size as the diploma and they stuck a little film camera in and some rolls of film and a bottle of, um, I think brandy It was like a 200 milliliter bottle of brandy. Um, and they had signed agreements to not take alcohol and cameras into space because they were only permitted to use like the, like the cameras that were the equipment up there. <laughs> and so they snuck this stuff up. They rewrapped it in this, this green, like green like plastic wrap i think they said i think it's like the green plastic yeah, you would use to wrap right. gifts or something like that um and no one thought anything of it because they thought it was just the diplomas in there and there was more stuff smuggled in um and so they took a bunch of pictures of inside the spacecraft but apparently i think the only way they could get the film developed was to turn the canisters of film in with the rest of the film that they used 
And the people who were developing the film and printing, uh, doing prints and everything, uh, <laughs> they because they had been doing this for so long, like they looked at the pictures and they were immediately like, like this, you wouldn't be you able to see camera. this. You guys used a different camera. Like these aren't the right focal lengths for the lenses. Well, uh, yeah, and apparently it was like <laughs> higher quality than yeah. they normally did. So they yeah. ended up keeping the photographs. Right. They said, so, okay, we'll, we'll just say that these are official photographs. But you can't have. They didn't give his negative, but negative his back. So yeah, they end up using their photographs that they had taken with it because they were higher quality. So that was that was a funny story, actually. I thought. Yeah, uh, I thought that was. I yeah, that was funny. I think it, it was something like you can't claim that like these are your photographs are going to be official photographs now, but but we won't get you in trouble over it. So did they say yeah. anything about the booze once they landed? I don't know if they did. I didn't mention it. So I imagine yeah, they probably I, smuggled the bottle out. Yeah. I mean, well, I don't know. Maybe they just threw it out the airlock. Like, yeah, that's true. To... Yeet. Burned up in the atmosphere. <laughs> um, yeah. So, burned yeah. up. So no problem. <laughs> yeah. That was that yeah that was that was a funny story but yeah this guy just sounds like he's just all over the place yeah and apparently like Romania was falling out of favor with the USSR because the USSR they, they definitely were right with the because they started accepting a bunch of like fucking IMF loans mm-hmm. yeah um, it was a whole it was a whole thing don't worry about <laughs> it. there's a whole episode <laughs> on it yep we lost uh, the time yikes the time <laughs> goodbye. Um, yeah, so, yeah, this guy came back, he talked all this shit that we just mentioned about, um, Chiu, how do you pronounce his name? Chaushescu? Hmm. Chaushescu, thank you. That's a bad This idea. is actually, <laughs> it, was a, it was a rough chapter, I had a hard time with this one. Um, yeah, he like, he got forbidden to be on public television and stuff, I think because he was acting like such a dickhead, so... <laughs> well and like public television at the end in romania like i it's 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 yeah it's tough because like ceausescu was like a fucking asshole um and did have like a personality thing but this guy also it just sounds like an instance of these two like huge personalities kind of bumping up against each other yeah it really does so. yeah i mean yeah i don't i don't know as much about romania as you do but yeah ceausescu i've heard isn't great so that's kind of the feeling I got too. It's just these two egos butting heads. So that was the last official Intercosmos flight. Like, the, so there weren't any more plans for Intercosmos flights, as in ones for other socialist countries. Um, but so, by at this point, the USSR was broadening out to other countries, and I mean, we can kind of zip through the other ones that aren't. But yeah, because like, unfortunately, uh, France was the next person to send someone into space on a Soviet ship. Yeah. <laughs> don't Boo. like that fuck i mean france. yeah exactly fuck france but like there was this weird i mean there was this it was weird because they'd had this long-standing soviet french cooperation and uh-huh. space exploration since like the 60s uh right yeah like they were the first capitalist country to conclude an agreement with the ussr to cooperate in the study and use of outer space um and so like there was this history and so so they had this guy uh jean jean-loup chretien i think he was in the French Air Force, and I yeah I don't know just during during his training the cosmonaut he was assigned to was removed or quit. It's not really clear, but they just like they didn't get along because it sounds I don't know it sounds to me like Chretien was kind of a dick because like 
he uh, so this once the story in this book was that like on during one of the simulations Shretian took a pillow into the Soyuz simulator with him and when they were like why do you have this pillow he's like well I might as well take a nap because you're not allowing me to do anything ugh <laughs> we're a little baby we're a little baby <laughs> but guy. I am a little tired. sleepy baby just a sleepy little baby <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in any case, on June 24th, 1982, they launched... By this point, uh, Salyut 7 was the space station that was up, which was very similar to Salyut 6, but a little but new. So the LA Times quoted... There's a quote that said, they said uh, Chatillon was bringing typical French meals, including, quote, four kilos of specially prepared jugged hair à la... à la... à fuck. Alsacien? <laughs> what? I'm, I'm trying to pronounce it. It's fucking uh, ah, l'Alsacien crab soup. I like how you're country closer to the mic. <laughs> yeah, I am. Uh, country pate, lobster pilaf with sauce la américain, uh, cantal cheese, white and white and rye bread, candied fruits, and chocolate cream. However, <laughs> no wines or liqueurs are included. <laughs> <laughs> like this Frenchman, like is going into space. He's like bringing all his fancy f- food. Yeah, and like not eating the stuff he's given. It's kind of funny. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. strange. Um, um. So it's interesting because this flight happened without any of the ceremony and celebration that the Intercosmos flights had, which was um. So the French president at this point, uh, Francois Mitterrand, his condition for letting it still happen was that. No French minister will come to the launch, and the cosmonauts and Shretien, before they launch, they won't do their normal speeches about, like, peace and prosperity. Uh, but they So they went up, and uh, everything went fine, I guess. But we'll, we'll um, use your resources was... to, to get scientific research from you. That's cool. Yeah, that's whatever. Uh, Shretien was quoted as saying, Soviet technology functioned admirably. Hell yeah, it did. I mean, I'm assuming he didn't make too bad of an impression with the Soviets because they let him back he Shretian went um on a soviet mission again in 1988 this time up to mir which the soviets had sent up in 1986 and this guy actually also went um up to space with nasa on the space shuttle so that's kind of interesting um yeah so that guy went up to space like three times at least three times um yeah i don't know it's it's weird like reading the stuff about like the capitalist um people on soviet ships was really weird because i mean it's i mean mid late 80s like obviously everything's falling apart in the soviet union unfortunately so then the next one they uh it was india so at the end of the 60s they were drawing up um they were like hey let's get a so they, they actually had like a decent relationship with the soviet union so um they were drawing up plans for a national space program with the assistance of the soviet union in the form of uh, both technical advice and equipment. So basically, like, Soviet scientists and technicians helped India develop the design systems and facilities. So the Indians, they sent up their own satellite in 1975, which is cool. But, I mean, they built it, in, like, designed and built it in India, but they launched it off from uh, the Soviet Union on a uh, Soviet launch vehicle. Yeah, but they were working together on some stuff. And in 1980, they were like, hey, let's send a Indian cosmonaut up into space. Um and they did that right as they were signing off like this huge arms deal worth like over a billion US dollars and like the US was or the USSR was helping India with um, atomic energy and it had nothing to do with military cooperation so they yeah so anyway they sent up this guy named Rakesh Sharma from the Indian Air Force so he and the other Indian pilot they didn't follow the Soviet cosmonaut training regimen 
Um, instead, they had this regimen of intensive yoga to see if this would help people with like weightlessness, which is, I don't know if it did or not. It didn't say. Yeah, but so on April third, nineteen eighty four, Sharma they like they yeah they launched. The Sharma brought in uh, Hindi films, recordings of sitar music, and fresh mangoes, which which is nice. Yeah, it was a lot of stuff about like uh, taking pictures for resource production and that kind of thing. Um, Sharma had a satellite link up to have a televised conversation with the Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. She asked how India looked from space, and he said, "The best in the world." I'm sure to him it was. Uh, Bulgaria got another shot uh, going to space because if you remember Georgi Ivanov, he didn't get to go on to Salyut. Um, they sent up his, his mustache was too big, yeah. But uh, they sent up another guy um, named Alexander Alexandrov. Um, that one was successful, although the Bulgarians gave him like 46 experiments to do in the week he was up there, which was not possible. That was just too many. They sent up a... Uh, oh, is that... Oh, is that a picture of Sharma? Yeah, he's a handsome guy. He has some not great quotes about because he, he went up. Let me find it. He went up with um, the U.S. as well. He went up with the U.S. later, and um, oh yeah, no, no, no. So he didn't go up again. Uh, but la later on, he got interviewed. He said um, they asked, like he was asked in an interview, would it be different? Would it have been different if you'd been launched into space with the Americans instead of the Soviets? And he said. I don't think so, but the Americans are far more focused on aims, and there would have been no such thing as propaganda, whereas for the Soviets, the trip was all about propaganda. Like, what do you mean mm. it would have not been about... Well, like, shut up. Sure. Yeah, it's just, it's a very silly, it's a very silly quote. I hate it when, when people frame things as like, oh, well, capitalist countries just tell it like it is, but socialist countries, yeah, they're exactly. just doing propaganda all propaganda the time. Propaganda's only a thing that they do in authoritarian countries. I mean, that interview was in 2009, so like... The Soviet Union had been long gone. Um, yeah. Uh, then the next one, in 1985, they the USSR extended an invitation to Syria to train some military airmen as candidates. So then this they, they would, that would be the first guest cosmonaut from the non-socialist developing world. They sent up this guy. His name is uh, Muhammad Faris, and he's... Um, this is a mess. So the USSR invited Syria to send this to send this guy up. They sent up uh, Muhammad Faris. So the Syrian guy, he spent the whole time on Mir con or on um, on the space station, constipated. Um, yeah, uh, he made it back. He made it back fine, but um, he. <laughs> When he made it back, he's uh, well. So, so on the way up, the yeah. So on the way up, he he brought with him some dirt from Damascus, some Syrian wheat, and a relic from the dawn of civilization, which was a tablet with some of the world's first alphabet. So that's that's kind of fun. He brought those into space. Um, yeah, but he spent the whole time constipated. He made it back. Um, he uh, <laughs> so in 2011, he defected to Turkey from Syria and. I don't know if he still is, but at one point he was a commander of the Free Syrian Army, which I believe is the one that was working with ISIS. So uh, not great. No. <laughs> no. Yeah, you uh, you hate to see it. Yeah. Oh yeah, those were the FSA was the U.S. like Turkish proxies allied with Al Qaeda. Um, very cool. So <laughs> yeah, that's that's not great. Um, the uh, they sent up a guy um, from Afghanistan named um, Abdul Ahad Mohmand. Um, he went up to Mir. Oh, Faris went up to Mir. Uh, Muhammad Faris went up to Mir as well. Sorry, I miss, I misspoke. Um, uh, Mokmand in 1988, August 1988, he went up to Mir. Um, and they 
did some science up there, I'm assuming. And then, so yeah, after Intercos, so after these, um, so a Japanese reporter, a British researcher, and an Austrian engineer, three separate trips, but those were the other non-Soviets who went on Soviet ships to Mir. Uh, that Austrian engineer went up in October 91, which is obviously like three months before the collapse of the Soviet Union, so that's a bummer. Um, it's kind of an interesting story. The first British person to go into space, her name was Helen Sharman, uh, so she's a woman, and but the first Br- British person to go into space went on a Soviet ship up into space, so that's oh wow, kind of fun. Yeah, I yep, didn't know that. Yep. Death to Great Britain. Um, <laughs> those were all the cosmonauts from the Intercosmos um, program and its and its follow ups. So, uh, what did uh, what did, what can we take away from this? <laughs> <laughs> Teacher Ethan coming through. I don't remember uh, who's hosting this. That was so long ago. Oh. Uh, Savannah, I think you're the host, right? Savannah. I am. I am hosting this. Um, yeah, I think it's really great that a lot of, uh, as we talked about earlier, a lot of the um, cosmonauts from socialist countries came from really humble backgrounds and had opportunities that we don't have in capitalist countries for education and for careers, especially in STEM um it sucks that some of them became reactionary but some of them stuck to their views so that's really inspirational also when we talk about the soviet union and a lot of socialist countries that don't exist anymore it's wild to like to talk about these people who did these amazing things who are the first folks in their from their countries to go into space and they're still alive i think we forget that sometimes that this happened so recently yeah, I, I think it was such a different time. You know, we were just as a species, I think we were so enamored with this. And there was such a mindset. And I think the reason why is because socialist countries were driving this mindset forward. But it was this mindset of like scientific advancement, achievement and exploration, because like we're humans and that's what we do. We like to learn and we like to explore and we'd like to advance ourselves and help other people. And like you just don't hear about space stuff and we don't do it as much anymore. Like, did anyone pay attention to this recent SpaceX thing? Like I didn't, I didn't give a fuck. Like who cares? Well, I mean, and the problem is it's, it's just another, it seems like at this point it's just another opportunity for fucking like the worst capitalists in the world to right. get more capital. Like fucking Elon Musk, um, <laughs> apartheid diamond or apartheid emerald, uh, air, like, is gonna like is is our main guy who's gonna get us to, like into space like that that yeah. sucks. It fucking um, sucks. Well, yeah, and like and and even NASA underfunded as it is now. Like even back in the day, it was like, I mean, it basically started as a fucking slush fund for uh, Nazis and right. like yeah. Nazi scientists. And All it's those just rocket like, scientists we stole from or we rescued from Nazi Germany. Yeah, Yikes. rescued for sure. And uh, yeah, and so and it's just it's really depressing to kind of think about that. There's no, um, I mean, I, I think the idea of exploration and and human development is and, and progress is is a is a, a noble one and a good one. And it's and that just doesn't really exist under capitalist mindset, you know. Because, I mean, I've I said this I said this number a number of times on the old podcast, but just like the the thing with socialism is that it. The goal is that will it will let us stop 
being animals and start being human beings for the first time. And that's, and, and I feel that way, especially like exactly, I feel exactly that way about space exploration and that sort of thing. Like I personally don't, I'm not one of those people who are like, Oh, our, our, our future is in the stars. I, I mean like, sure, maybe, but I think for me, the interesting thing about space exploration was that it, from in these socialist countries, that's that's the only place you can see a real sense of human society progressing to something that's not driven by, that's not driven by profit, that's not driven by greed, that's not driven by new resources, new lands to conquer, new um, new things to exploit. Like only under a socialist system could you have people exploring because that's what humans have historically done is is go is find the horizon and and find new things and under capitalism that's poisoned and so i don't know just feel bad about it yeah it's i know it's it's it was so exciting and fun to read about these cosmonauts from soviet countries and then you just think about how it's all just sort of fallen apart and i don't know how much potential socialism had and where we are now it's it's i go from being excited to, to read all this and inspired to being real sad because it's just the world's gotten worse since then i was just gonna add uh, i really appreciate hearing about uh, the cosmonauts from these different countries that you don't really learn anything about or you don't hear anything about because they aren't quote-unquote relevant to the west and I feel like that's uh, another beautiful example of just the camaraderie that uh, this this program had, um, like uh, giving space. <laughs> I didn't mean to make that pun, but it kind of works. <laughs> giving space nice. for these, uh, pun only slightly intended. Yeah, but it, it's just really beautiful because that's truly internationalist. Right, absolutely. But that's not something you hear about uh, the USA really doing unless they're a Western uh, uh, country. Yeah. Yeah. And the research that these cosmonauts were able to do was also focused on their own countries. So if those programs would not have happened, like, would you have had a cosmonaut in space doing research on the environmental impact of the war in Vietnam? Probably not. So yeah, it, it is really amazing to see voices uplifted by this program. Yeah, I mean that's that's what I liked about that's what I liked about the Inner Cosmos program specifically is that it was explicitly framed as like socialist fraternity. Yeah, this know. is about friendship. Chug, chugging beers. No, but like, uh, <laughs> one no, guy. but like, but like it was it was these it was socialist countries like in their like at going about socialism in their own um in their own ways like following their own paths, but like working together for something bigger than either country on its own could do. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a really cool legacy though that they left. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that, I mean, this is something that all of us as socialists, this is part of our, this is part of our legacy, you know, like we, as we're, we're part of a tradition that, that went to the stars um, and went and and worked to create something like advance human knowledge and 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 the advancement of the species for something beyond beyond making money for like Elon Musk or Richard Branson or right. whatever fucking like capitalist asshole 
yeah, it's 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 a, it's a selflessness you you literally cannot achieve in in a capitalist society. Right. Yeah, that interconnectedness was so emphasized. And yeah, like you said, you know, working beyond something something bigger than yourself. Thank you both for reading this book and breaking it down for us and sharing some amazing oh. stories. Yeah, go Ethan. Can I can I say something about this book? So so a lot of so so a lot of this came from this um th- th- there's only been like one book specifically written about intercosmos as far as i can tell it's mm-hmm. called intercosmos the eastern blocks early space program by colin burgess and burt weiss it's it was very strange because like a lot of it there's a lot of really good information and really interesting stories laid out but at the same time it's also it puts in all this weird, like the politics of it are so strange. I mean, they're, they're, they were bad, but just overall bad, but like in strange ways, because like, um, what was, let me find the bit at the end that I was just like, wow, are you really saying this homie? Um, (laughs) yeah. So it's, it's near the end of the book. They say the intercosmos program was all about publicity, nothing less, nothing more as such. it succeeded, and it set several firsts in manned spaceflight. First international space crew, first non-Soviet and non-American space traveler, first Asian cosmonaut, first black cosmonaut. Um, and so and then it says when when one includes the follow-up international missions, a few more firsts can be added. You've got the first Hindu cosmonaut, first Arab slash Muslim cosmonaut, first EVA by a non-Soviet, non-American cosmonaut. And then it says... Uh, Over the years, however, these firsts have become less and less significant, especially in comparison to those of the 1960s, such as first man and woman in space, first spacewalk, and first man on the moon. And it's just, it's so strange to me that you can say that, like, the first Asian, the first black cosmonaut, those are not, those are less important in time. That's that's such a strange thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That definitely sounds like some propaganda. Even yeah, though. well, exactly. It's like, well, we, we need to kind of dial back. We got to, yeah, we got to, we got to dial back like any positives about this because I mean, and if you look at the authors of this, like they are, they do a lot of stuff like with NASA and get a bunch of, uh, um, there's a lot of, yeah, I don't know. It's it's just it's weird. I don't. Yeah, it's it's a. Same... It was a strange. It was a very strange book. Yeah, it was it was a weird read for sure. Good info. I think I think people who can kind of read through the bullshit, you know, there's there's stuff to be enjoyed there for sure. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like it's, if you read with a critical eye, there's good stuff. Right. But you will have to have a critical eye in certain parts. It's just like, come yeah. on, man, really? And it just, it, it has that exact same paradigm that we're all familiar with. We're like, no matter what socialist countries are doing something bad, like, even if it seems like it's good, it's, you know, it's got bad motivations behind it. And right. I, exactly. It's, just, it's tiring. It's just really tiring. Yeah. Yep. Well, thanks for giving us the good stuff. It was very enjoyable. <laughs> I'm glad yeah, you we it. read this book so you don't have to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, thank you, because then we don't have to wade through all the bull. So mm-hmm. that's nice. Yeah, we gave you all the good shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you both for doing that. I learned a lot about the different um, countries' space programs within Intercosmos. I think that's really amazing and really inspirational, even though it's sad to think about where socialism is now in comparison to where it was but 
but all in all, I think it's very inspirational. Y'all ready for socialism too? <laughs> Here it comes. <laughs> Part two, let's go. Thank you all for listening. If you would like to find us on social media, we're on Twitter, and you can email us as well. Our contact info will be in the description of whatever app you use to listen. Thank you very much for listening. Solidarity forever. All power to the people. All All power power to the people. Bye. 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 Bye.